Let's look at John 11 this morning as we begin. It says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found out that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, over the past four weeks, we've been in a sermon series exploring the topic of grief. Because for over a hundred days, we, whether we're willing to admit it or not, right, we've been face to face with grief. The grief sits in our past. This grief, it sits in our present. And it also sits in our future as a sort of anticipatory grief. See, we look at the things that we've lost over the past couple of months. We, we mourn the things that we feel like maybe we're losing, and we anticipate the things may not be the same. The phrase new normal pretty much wraps up all of that. At first, when I heard that phrase, it, it just kind of felt natural to say there's going to be some kind of new normal that we experience. But maybe like me, you felt the same way, that over the weeks, as time went on, that new normal phrase began to grate on you a little bit. It began to scratch at you. It began to feel, uh, it, it, just, it just felt gross. I, can I be honest about that? Th- that's what I feel with that. New normal. It reminds me that things won't look the same. For those of us who have kids in the School system, we start getting these emails about what things may look like or how things might be different. Every time I see one, I think about my friends who are teachers. I just stop and I just pray because I know that as they read those things, they wonder, how, how do I do this and what does that look like? They are absolute heroes, aren't they? For thinking about this future, for serving our kids in an uncertain reality. We have a lot of heroes in, in this time and in this day. But a lot of us are also in the midst of grief. We're uncertain about the future. We're uncertain what things look like. This new normal tells us something isn't quite the same. And guys, we have to talk about it. See, the reality for us is that this year has brought us crisis. It's brought us upheaval. It's brought us uncertainty in ways that many of us have never experienced before. And with it, it's brought all kinds of emotions. Emotions like denial and anger and sadness So maybe one day you start to feel sad, and maybe one day you start to feel anger. Maybe one day you look and you're not exactly sure to how to feel. It just seems like a wrapped up bunch of emotions that you've been experiencing. This is a normal part of grief. It's something that every one of us is facing. See, part of that new normal is that we're not used to collective grief, and that's what this looks like, all of us grieving at the same time. So some of us are quick to move on. We're quick to deny it. We're quick to get on with our lives, to get back to how things used to be. 
But there's a warning about that. Psychologists and counselors tell us that to, to quickly move on from things, to move on from grieving is unhealthy. And what we've discovered in this series that in Scripture, we find out that moving on from grief too quickly is also unspiritual. So over the past few weeks, we've learned to face that grief, to not run from it, to not ignore it. That it's not just unhealthy for our bodies and our minds, it can hinder our relationships with God and with others. To ignore our grief, this is how I wrote it down, is to ignore our human experience, an experience that God cares about as he walks with us and sits with us amid our grief. Now listen to that again. This is how I wrote it in my notes and something I wanted to point out today. To ignore our grief, to ignore our grief is to ignore our human experience, an experience that God cares about as he walks with us and sits with us amid our grief. And we see that in the story of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, here in John chapter 11. Lazarus, we're told, was sick and dying. And these sisters sent word to Jesus because he was their friend. They loved Jesus and they believed in him. And between the time that Jesus heard and the time he arrived, Lazarus had died. So when Jesus arrived, the emotion of grief was thick in the air. Now, over the past few weeks, we've looked at denial. We've looked at anger. We've looked at sadness that we find in this story and that we've used as a jump-off point to understand the emotions that we're feeling. But there's something else that I want to explore today in this passage that I think helps us to talk about the grief that we are experiencing today. So let's jump back into this for a second. We're going to go back to John 11. We're going to go in the story to 17, where Jesus arrives and where Martha confronts him with all of her emotion, with everything that she's feeling. Listen again to what this says. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Now, listen, listen to what she says here. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, later on in this story, these words are echoed by Mary, Martha's sister. Listen to the words again. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I want to pull back and look at this phrase. Sometimes when we read scripture, we simply just read the words, but we don't feel the emotion. I want you to imagine yourself in the shoes of Martha. I want you to think about the grief that she is feeling. I want to sit in this moment with her a little bit as she experiences this myriad of emotions. And think about what you would be feeling. You'd be feeling these emotions that we all feel in grief. Sadness and anger, uncertainty and fear. She isn't sure what to feel. It just becomes this ball of emotion. So I want you to hear these words again. Because there's another element of grief that is taking place in these words. And the cue is given to us with the word if. Listen again. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Now, how many of us have said similar things amid our grief? Grief makes us feel vulnerable and helpless. So therefore, it makes it sense to create a defense and look for ways to regain control. Maybe we could have changed what happened. Maybe we can still change things. And for many of us, that desire to change things, for the story to look different than it looks today, turns into a kind of prayer filled with words of bargaining and promise. And it looks a lot like, if you do this, God, I will do this. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. God, if you, if you do this, things will look different. If you do this, things will change. But then we add in this extra piece. We, we add in this piece of, and I promise, God, I, I promise if you do that, I promise that I will do something else. I, I promise that I'll change in some kind of way. I promise that I'll do something here. See, that's what we tend to do is we bargain with God amid our grief. Now, it's easy to criticize these grief-filled promises. Here's what I want to do today, though. Rather than telling us to not approach God in this way, I want us to understand why we do it and how we can understand it in light of our faith. Because I think it's dangerous to walk away from the stages of grief. Listening to psychologists, counselors, experts in the area of grief. We're not supposed to short-circuit this process. There's a danger in that. We also discovered, like I said, that there's a danger in that spiritually. Jesus himself, he invites people to mourn. He invites people to feel all of that human emotion of grief. Jesus felt grief. We see Jesus experiencing all of the human emotions that we experience. To short-circuit that means to not experience things the way that God wanted us to experience them. That's part of being a human. It's part of the process. So rather than short-circuiting it, rather than stopping, rather than saying we're not going to experience this, how can we use this to better understand God, ourselves, and our faith? See, this common response to grief shows up over and over and over again. And while we can't look at all the passages, we can find comfort. We're not alone. We can look around at our community and realize that we're not alone in our grief. And we can also look in Scripture and realize that we're not alone in this either. But, but we can't look at all the passages, can we? So to explore this today, I want to look at one passage. It's something that I've heard a lot over the last few weeks, and I want to see where this takes us today. Listen to this. This is in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 7.14. And Chronicles is a history. It tells the history of the Israelites and their kings, and it's fascinating. And sometimes we look into it, and we find these stories, and some verses get pulled out, and this is one of those verses. It's a common verse that gets pulled out, and it's been pulled out a lot over the past few weeks. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin 
and will heal their land. Now, maybe you've heard this, but I'm just going to read it one more time. Listen to this. If, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, this verse has shown up for a while now. It's shown up at political prayer breakfasts a lot. It shows up on Facebook posts. But even more so, I think it's showing up today as people try to understand what's happening around them. But there is a huge danger in this. And this is what I want to make sure that you hear today. Because this verse seems to get trotted out all the time in places where we're not exploring, not trying to understand things, not trying to discover what God is trying to tell us through this or understand the people of God and their experience with God. It simply gets trotted out out of context to score points or help people feel better about something or to create some kind of change that they want and to create some kind of guilt reality. And the danger in this is that it becomes ripped out of its context Now, here's what I want you to understand. When reading from the story of God, it's important to understand how things fit in the story rather than reading ourselves into a passage. Now, listen, I want you to hear that again. When reading from the story of God, it's important to understand how things fit in the story rather than reading ourselves into a passage. So with that in mind, let's look at the larger context, because I think there's something here that I want us to explore that helps us understand the bargaining and part of our grief that we've been talking about today. So look at the larger story, 2 Chronicles 7. We're going to go back to verse 11, just a few verses before. It says, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace... The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel." But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you and go to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and this temple? Now, there are so many things going on in this passage that give us a cue why it's so dangerous to rip it out of context and apply it somehow to ourselves. The first cue is that it talks about Solomon. It talks about a temple. 
It talks about sacrifice and King David. It talks about a different time and a different place. Second Chronicles tells us that Solomon built a temple for God. Now listen, God responded by filling the temple with his glory. He made his dwelling there. Sacrifices were offered. And then look, God appeared to Solomon with both a promise and a warning. And that promise and warning was based on a prayer that Solomon made in the chapter before. See, if we go back to verse 12, he says, I have heard your prayer. What prayer? Well, the prayer that comes before this. Solomon had given a prayer to God about this temple, about this experience, about his people, in an understanding of who they were at that specific time in the story of God. You see, as we look at the people of God, as we look at the story of God, as people are trying to understand God within their context, and particularly here within the ancient world, this sits in a very specific moment. Solomon lived within a specific ancient covenant Israel had with God. That covenant said that as God's people, they would be blessed to go and bless the world. This is part of the covenant that goes all the way back to Abraham, that God looked at him and said, listen, Abraham, you, you are going to be a people. Your descendants are going to become a people, and they're going to have a job. They're going to be priests. They're going to serve They're going to tell who I am to this world. He chose this very specific people to open the pages and begin to tell the story of who God is and why God created, why God loves us, what God is doing in this world. And Solomon lived in that. He lived within that promise, within that covenant. But here's the key. Those blessings went away if they failed to follow God's commands. And this is what Solomon prayed about within this very specific context. He prayed if they failed, and listen to this now, if they failed but repented, God wouldn't give up on them, and he would fulfill his promises. If they failed but they repented, He prayed, would would God give up? He said, God, if if we fail, what we're supposed to do? But we repent, will you fulfill your promises? Now, this is important because their failure was called wickedness. We think of wickedness in all sorts of ways, but wickedness had a very specific reality in that covenant, and this matters. Wickedness was almost always tied up with pride and with greed and with arrogance. Now that matters because the people of God were supposed to tell the story with the entire world. Another way to explain that would be to say that the people of God were to share, were to share God with the world. Now, now let me just back up a second because I want to put this in, in some kind of context that helps us understand this or a way that we can feel this a little bit. My kids have a Lego table upstairs. And at that Lego table, it has just basically taken over our dining room because let's be honest, we're not having a whole lot of people over to the house, right? So we told them, you can have the dining room and you can set out your Legos and you can enjoy this. And that table is big enough for these two to have their own space for hours on end. 
But somehow, throughout the day, they always end up at the same piece with the same character, the same tiny little minifigure out of thousands of Legos they both want. And they both desire that thing more than anything else. And it usually starts out with a little gentle yell, and then it turns into a scream, and then it turns into a fight, and somebody pinches somebody, and then they both end up losing the Legos. Now, that sounds kind of ridiculous and weird, but we've all experienced it. But think about that for a second. Just share the Legos. Stop being greedy. Stop wanting everything for yourself. Now, think about this. This is maybe a simplistic way to understand this, but I, but I want to help us to at least try to understand it a little bit more in depth today because it matters. When the Israelites had pride and greed and arrogance about who they were, they failed to tell the story of God. They failed to share who God was with their world. They failed in the assignment that God had given them. They failed in the invitation. They failed the special relationship that they had with God because of their pride, their greed, their arrogance, their inability to see the world the way that God sees the world. And while this passage shouldn't be pulled from its context, It's this understanding of wickedness where this passage connects to our reality today. See, hear me say that again. It's in this understanding of wickedness where this passage connects to our reality today. So not pulling it out of context, but understanding our place in the story and reflecting on people who experienced God and what their experience was and what that has to do with us today. And we reframe and re-understand, we interpret that past through the reality that is formed in Jesus. Because see, Jesus changed all of this. The good news of Jesus changed the reality for everything. The primary focus becomes no longer the healing of a particular land. The the, the reality of Jesus means that no longer is there a particular land here that needs to be healed for these people to share the message of Jesus. All people have an invitation to be a part of God's kingdom. All people have an invitation. This is the good news that you and I and anyone and everyone can follow the way of Jesus, which is how we understand what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is supposed to look like and share God with our world. So the primary focus is no longer the healing of a particular land. It's the humbling of God's people, you and me, in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, what happens is our pride, our greed, our arrogance gets in in the way of us sharing the story of God with the people around us. The followers of Jesus in the early church understood this. And listen to this passage in 1 Peter, a letter written to early Christians, that you can hear the tie going on to this Old Testament passage. Listen to this. It says, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, Because he cares for you. 
So here's what I want to tell you. Rather than use 2 Chronicles 7.14 and passages like it as some kind of out-of-context bargaining chip, we should see them as an invitation to understand our place in the story as followers of Jesus, to see the world the way that God sees the world. So I think in a lot of ways that's what Solomon was trying to say. God, this is my prayer. Don't let us get in the way of sharing your story with the world. Don't let our pride and our greed and our arrogance get in the way of loving God and loving others. Don't don't let us get in the way of you. Let us reflect you into our world. Now that connects to us, doesn't it? What if as followers of Jesus, we said, don't, don't let us get in the way of how God sees the world. But instead, help us to see the world the way that you see the world. In light of the suffering that we see and experience, we should promise to do something about it. And this is what this has to do with bargaining. See, because of Jesus, we know God's promises to us. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, that you may experience the real life that I have brought to you through the way that I'm teaching you. What's fascinating about that is in his teaching, he said that we're to mourn. So that abundant life doesn't necessarily look like this idea of just good things happening all the time to good people. It means that we understand our lives in a different way. That abundant life must mean something different. It must have something to do with sharing his love with the world. So this is the question we need to ask. What are we promising to God? And sometimes it's amid our bargaining that we discover those promises we need to make. So the next time you enter that stage of grief where you find yourself bargaining with God, when you find yourself saying, if God does, I will, what would it look like to reframe it? What would it look like to reframe that bargaining in a way to understand? See, here's, what, here's how I wrote this down. We aren't to center our faith on celestial bargaining chips. But it's sometimes in those honest human moments where reflection on our faith can occur. It's in those moments that we can see God working through our story as he begins to write the next chapter. And the part that we play in the next chapter is up to us. It's not asking God for a rewrite. It's asking for us to help write the next part. That in that bargaining with God, we realize as we go through that process, that we're not asking God to rewrite our experience. We're asking God to work through that experience to help us to write the next part of the story because we are in a story of God. Our generation is the next generation of people who have followed this God who wants us to bring his love into this world. And even amid our grief, we're asking God to reconcile that grief, to redeem that grief, to restore us and help us to share his love with the world. Now, as I wrote this sermon, 
I kept coming back to a story, to a letter that my grandfather wrote to my great-grandmother during World War II. And I remember hearing this story. I remember reading this letter. And as soon as I began to talk about it, I couldn't get this out of my head, but I hesitated. I hesitated until Friday to bring this personal story into this sermon. So as I wrote on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, I had all these pieces together, and I, I got to the end of the week, and I said, something is still missing. Something doesn't feel right. What needs to be said? And I came back to this story because I couldn't get it out of my mind. Because sir, there is something here I want to learn from. There's something here that I want to learn from that helps us in our moments today. For me, as I read this, I feel like my grandfather is still teaching me something that I need to learn today about having faith. Here's what it says. October 29th, 1943. I have to plan for my future in life to come. And may the good Lord help me in what I plan to do after this is all over. I have made up my mind that I would devote my life to Him and that I would serve Him as long as I live. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to reframe that again because I want to think about this a little deeper. I don't know what his experience with war was like. I can't imagine the uncertainty that he was facing as a young man being sent over to Europe with an uncertain future, not knowing who or what was coming around the next corner. And I try to imagine him as a young man. It's hard to do. But I try to imagine him sitting with a pen and a piece of paper writing to his mom his experience, reflecting on what he was seeing in saying those words. I have to plan for my future. And may the good Lord help me in what I plan to do after this is all over. I've made up my mind that I would devote my life to him, that I would serve him as long as I live. Now, did you hear the familiar phrase? And this is why I realized I couldn't let this story go. After all of this is over, amid the uncertainty of the moment, amid the anticipatory grief that comes with not knowing what's around the next corner, my grandpa made a promise to God. And his promise was to serve God. And here's the thing, some people could criticize that's promise. And that's why I was afraid to include this story, but also why I kept it in. Because in that moment of fear, in that moment of uncertainty, in that moment of anticipatory grief about what was to come in the next moment or come in the years ahead, he made a promise to God. And I feel like it's easy for people to look at those moments and say, oh, you were bargaining with God. You, you, were, you were questioning things. You were bargaining. You were, you were testing God in that moment. And, and that doesn't seem like it's a thing you're supposed to do. And I really wrestled with that because I realized that people could criticize him for that. But that's exactly why I kept it in the story. You see, Jesus was sent to rescue us, 
so that we could participate in the redemption, the restoration, and the renewal of a very broken world. And hear me say this because this is what I realize and I learned from this moment what I realize in the story of Scripture, that promising our lives over to God in reflection of the reality of the world that we face, seeing the world from God's perspective, reframes what we're facing in light of our faith. And what I discovered is a very simple thing. It isn't if we will make promises to God amid our grief. That is a part of the grieving process. That is a part of the process of bargaining, of of grieving. It's bargaining. So the question isn't, will we make promises amid our grief? We will. The question is this. Will we accept the invitation to follow through with our promises. Amid our grief, as we look to the months, maybe the years ahead, and in that grief after anger and sadness, or before anger and sadness, during that time that we're experiencing all of these emotions, when we say, God, if you would just help us get through this, God, I promise... I promise that I'll do something different. I promise that I'll give my life to you. I promise that things will look different. I promise that I'll make changes with my family. I promise that the things we've done during this time, I'll continue on. I promise that I won't have any greed or arrogance or pride in the future. I promise that I'll put you first. I have a feeling a lot of us are going to make promises like that amid this grief because we're looking to our future and we're saying it's uncertain. But what happens When we get to that future, what happens when we get to that place? Do we follow through with the promises we made? Do we say, God, my life is given to you, and I will follow you because of the promises that you gave to us? I know that I'm part of a bigger story than just this moment. And then I have a role to play as a follower of Jesus. I invite you today that during that time that you reflect on the promises of God and the promises that you've made to God, that you'll pray that God will work through it. And on the other side of this, that you'll fulfill those promises to God. Because God needs you. He wants you as a part of his restored people, bringing his love to this world. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for the witness of my grandfather. who in a time of grief and uncertainty gave his whole life over to you. And in the process, God, changed not only his life, but the generation that followed and the generation that followed after that. That he gave a witness 
to what it looks like to give our lives over to the way of Jesus. Father, in our own times of uncertainty, help us to give our lives over to you, to reflect on your promises and realize your goodness, that you are a good Father, and that you are our Heavenly Father who invites us to participate in the redemption and the restoration, the renewal of this world as we love you and show your love to others. God, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus today. Amen.